0: Go. What's that? Here? Turn. (laughs) Turn. Okay, right there. Are we good now? Are we good? Do I need more? Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Uh, Welcome, everybody. Thank you very much. This is the Council. We are starting the council right now. I am your host, Charlie Pacello, and we're just waiting for this one camera here to get going and start. Um, good afternoon and welcome to the council. I'm your host, Charlie Pacello, and we've got an exciting show today. I just want to make a quick uh, thank you to Remax Alliance. Remax Alliance is the sponsor of our show. If you want to get a home in Colorado, go to www.homesincolorado.com. That's homesincolorado.com. And they will, they're, they're fantastic. The guys, they're amazing. They will, they're the number one in Colorado for homes. And if you need to sell or buy a home, go to RE-MAX Alliance and they will take care of you. I know them personally, you can say I sent you and uh, they'll take care of you. So RE-MAX Alliance, thank you so much. And I also want to thank KUHSdenver.com Uh, We're broadcasting internationally, nationally, locally, we're providing the best music, the best shows all over the country, and thank you so much for your support, and thank you KUHS Denver for allowing me the opportunity to host this show. Um, Before I begin, I I do have to acknowledge that what I'm going to be talking about today is a pretty serious topic, and I carry uh, a responsibility. To all of you who tune into the show, uh, to try to bring you the truth, and to try to bring you uh, what to uh, the evidence, and to do it with class and dignity and respect. Um, my, uh, I, I spoke to my mom, and she right before she's like, what's, "What's what? Are you trying to accomplish with this?" And I, I, I really want to to educate, to enlighten, to illuminate, and um, and maybe to deepen your faith. Uh, a little bit more into some of the mysteries of life Uh, I'm not here to change anyone's beliefs I am here to open up the dialogue and to ask some of the deeper questions you know one of the things that plagued me this week is uh, you know was the resurrection uh, for which we celebrate this Easter was it a real event Um, did Jesus Christ actually die on the cross and rise from the dead and, or is it something that has been told to us and uh, we've been living for 2,000 years, something that wasn't true? And if it isn't true, then are we just repeating and regurgitating and circulating a mythological story or framework of the birth, death, rebirth motif of this God Goddess motif, which preceded the crucifixion uh, for thousands of years? Uh, and if it is true that a man can transmute his body into light, conquer death, and come back to tell his disciples, it, was he the only one? Uh, out of all the billions of people on this planet who lived, uh, is he the only one? Uh, are there others who have claimed to do the same thing? Uh, perhaps even perfected it, and, you know, given it a system, and replicated it, uh, and were there eyewitnesses to this story? Uh, that can confirm the truth of their dissolution of the body into physical spirit. And who are they? And where are they? And so these are some of the questions that I was asking this week and doing my research and and trying to confront some of these fundamental notions that that much of our society is based on. Because if the resurrection is a lie, then we've been believing in something that isn't true. And atheists and free thinkers are already thinking what I'm talking about today is going to be a bunch of hogwash. <laughs> Mine, that's okay with me. I, I, I actually walked your way for many years and turned my back on God and I lived the life of a, a dissolute reprobate. And it left me empty and hopeless and filled with despair because I couldn't find anything worth living for if life meant nothing. And uh, so for the rest of you who are tuning in, I'm, I'm going to try to present to you some of the things that I discovered along the way. And I, my approach to this topic was to be um, an ob- objective observer and collecting just information from various perspectives and then allow you to make your own decision uh, based upon, you know, to see if it has any value to you. Uh, my intention, again, is to bring hope uh, deep in your faith Illuminate, awaken, and put things in perspective and expand your, uh, your mind on some of the, one of the most profound questions humankind faces. Death and the spirit. You know, are we truly resurrected from our bodies? Some say yes, some say no. So what's the truth? So to start out, I want to begin the conversation with a little insight into the physical nature and reality of things. So here's the quote. Before you judge others and claim any absolute truth, consider that you see less than 1% of the electromagnetic spectrum. And you hear less than 1% of the acoustic spectrum. As you're listening to this or watching this uh, on the radio, you are traveling at 220 kilometers per second across the galaxy. 90% 90% of the cells in your body carry their own microbial DNA, and they are not you. The atoms in your body are 99.9999999% space. I mean, this quantum physics is incredible. And none of them are the ones that you're actually born with, um, but they all of them originated in, a, in the belly of a star. Human beings have 46 chromosomes. Two less than a common potato. And the existence of the rainbow depends on the conical photoreceptors in your eyes. Animals that are without those cones, the rainbow does not exist. So in essence, you don't just look at a rainbow, you create it. And this is pretty amazing, especially considering that all the beautiful colors you see represent less than 1% of the electromagnetic spectrum. That's the end of the quote. So why am I sharing you these things about the physical reality of things? It's because I want you to understand that there are some things that we just really don't understand. We just, we think we do, but we don't. And we think we're right. You know, we're, we're right, and they're wrong, and accept it. Instead of living in the wonder and the mysteries, the incredible mysteries of life that surrounds us. I mean, our understanding is so limited And we with our little minds are not really able to comprehend the invisible workings of this universe with an absolute certainty. I mean, we only see and hear about 1% of all that exists. I mean, that's incredible. It's a small fraction of what is out there. So how can we possibly know and ascertain what is the truth? When we look at something as big as a resurrection, we are bound to make mistakes. And errors along the way. I may have made mistakes as I, I put together this show. Uh, I, I apologize if I have. And we, you know, we're, we're searching to substantiate uh, our beliefs. And yet, usually, where we end up is living just in the mystery and faith of it all. So I think it's important to have an open heart, an open mind, and recognize the powers that govern the universe are much, much larger than anything we can possibly conceive of. Today is Good Friday, uh, the day that Christ died on the cross, which led to three days later, his resurrection. I mean, this is the foundational core belief of all Christianity. And if the resurrection is a hoax or is a myth, is founded on the line, then billions of people, a lot of people have organized their entire life around an error. So what's the truth? What I'm going to do is I'm going to present before Jesus... Jesus and after Jesus. That's pretty much the outline. And I'm going to present different perspectives on the origins of the Easter uh, from our pagan roots. And then I'm going to go to a defense of Jesus, his resurrection by scholars who tested it uh, against the facts identified in the New Testament, present the other side, and then present the case that possibly others after Christ have done the similar or same thing. All of this, again, is for you to determine on your own. This is just what I've found. And I leave it for you to decide if resurrection or the rainbow body uh, is a myth, is a story, or an actual human event that very spiritual people can't take. The Easter holiday is a festival. It's celebrated by millions. It celebrates the resurrection of Jesus. It's also the day that children run around and waiting for the Easter bunny to arrive. They go Easter egg hunting, and it's a joyous occasion for everybody. Easter ends up, turns out, it's a a movable feast. It corresponds to the first Sunday following the full moon after the March equinox. And it occurs on different dates uh, all around the world since different churches, the Orthodox and the Roman Catholic, move it based upon the calendars that they use. One uses the Gregorian calendar, and the other uses the Julian calendar. calendar. Go figure. So what are the pagan roots of Easter? What are the origins of the customs and traditions that we celebrate? Most historians, including biblical scholars, agree that Easter was originally a pagan festival. The word Easter is of Saxon origin, aastra the goddess of spring, in which honor was given to her by sacrifices that were made uh, over the Passover time every year. And in the 8th century, the Anglo-Saxons had adopted the name to designate the celebration of Christ's resurrection. However, even those who maintain Easter has pagan roots, there is some room for disagreements about which pagan tradition it originally came from. Now, one theory suggests that the Easter story of the crucifixion and resurrection is a symbolic representation of, the, of rebirth and renewal. And it retells the cycles of the season. Basically, the death and rebirth of the sun, the sun god. And in ancient times, this would be represented as the sun god. And to some scholars, the Easter story comes from the ancient Sumerian legend of Damuzi, or Tammuz, in Babylonia, and his wife, Inanna, or Ishtar, which is an epic myth that civilization, uh, or it was an epic myth from the civilization called the Descent of Inanna that was inscribed on cuneiform uh, in, dating back to 2100 BCE. Now, in the story, Tammuz dies, and Ishtar is grief-stricken and follows him into the underworld. And in the underworld, she goes through these seven gates. And there, her worldly attire is removed. She's naked, and she bows down to the underworld god or goddess and is judged and then killed. And then she's hung on display. And in her absence, the earth loses all of its fertility. Crops stop growing, the animals stop reproducing. Unless something is done, all life on earth will end. After Inanna has been missing for three days, one of her attendants goes to all the other gods for help. And finally, one of them, Enki, creates two creatures who carry the plant of life and water of life down to the underworld and sprinkle them on Inanna and Damuzi, resurrecting them and giving them the power to return to the earth and the light of the sun for six months. After the six months are up, Tammuz returns to the underworld uh, of the dead and remaining there for another six months until Ishtar again pursues him, prompting the water god to pursue and rescue both of them. And thus we have the cycle of winter death and spring life. Now that's just one of the many myths connected to the Easter holiday. Now, there are scholars that point out that just because one parallels draws parallels between the story of Jesus and the epic of Inanna doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't a real person or wasn't crucified. And they say, if there was, the story about the death and resurrection is structured and embellished in accordance with a pattern that was very widespread and ancient. Now, outside of Mesopotamia, Inanna is known by her Babylonian name, which is Ishtar. And in ancient Canaan, Ishtar is known as Astarte, and her counterparts in the Greek and Roman pantheons would be Aphrodite and Venus. Now, these myths, they permeated throughout all these ancient societies, and they provided meaning and connection to the heaven and to earth, and they gave them a sense of identity. Now, one of the very important myths um, that, about, that predated the arrival of Jesus were the myths of Osiris. Horus and Dionysus, and the prevailing themes of these mythic stories include fertility, conception, descent into the darkness, renewal, and the triumph of light over darkness or good over evil. The myth of Osiris is probably the oldest myth that we have, and it's been left to us by the ancient Egyptians. Quick overview of this myth. Osiris was this great king god of Egypt, and who ruled with grace, magnanimity, and wisdom. And he was slain by his jealous brother, Set, who dismembered him and cut him up into 14 pieces and spread his body parts all across Egypt. Isis, the goddess queen of Egypt and wife of Osiris, went around and found all the body pieces and and started to reassemble him. The part that was missing, though, was is Isis ended up reconstructing it out of gold and mysteriously got impregnated and delivered their sun god, Horus. Osiris is the god of the afterlife, the underworld, as well as the god of resurrection, transition, and regeneration. And Horus, the miracle child, would eventually become the redeemer and bring justice to his murdered father, very much like Hamlet. And the one who would set the world in order and very very much very christ-like now it's at this point that scholars seem to split upon where where the direction that the horus myth goes some suggest that the jesus story is plagiarized from the horus myth and these writers claim that both were born of a virgin born on the 25th of december a star in the east three wise men uh, Twelve disciples performed miracles, walked on water, and both were crucified and resurrected. And while I was doing the research, uh, it wasn't clear to me which was right here or who was wrong. It, uh, you know, I leave that to you to discover if something if that's something you're interested in. It's my opinion though that the closer we can get to the truth of things, the closer we can get to the source material, the closer we'll understand. And especially when you're trying to understand. This, Things like the mysteries of spirituality. It's easy to get go on too many different directions. But I couldn't find anything that, that substantiated that. There is another myth that is closely associated with Jesus, which is the myth of Dionysus. It was one of my favorite Greek gods. Uh, and obviously, ancient Greek god. Dionysus was a god of birth, death, and rebirth. And he, like Osiris, again, was a god of resurrection, transition, and regeneration. And because this type of mythic story was so prevalent, um, many believed that Jesus was just another representation of Dionysus. And I don't have time for today to be able to go into all the differences and similarities, but one of the things, differences that stands out is there's one contradiction, is that Dionysus was not killed by a crucifixion. However, he was captured by the Titans uh, when he was a child, and the Titans boiled him alive and then consumed him. And Dionysus was resurrected, but not after three days after the tomb. Zeus finds out what the Titans have done, and having killed his son, and Zeus goes out on a bloody vengeance. (laughs) He really makes them pay for what happened. And after making the Titans pay for what they did, Zeus restores Dionysus to life from the leftovers of Dionysus' heart. And Dionysus was an important god associated with the vine, the theater, and was worshipped throughout Greece and in that part of the area for millennia. And these wonderful myths do have this familiar theme of the Redeemer, the cycle of a god who is born, dies, and comes back to life. And it is possible that they influenced, shaped, and provided the structure of the story of Jesus. Obviously, those who follow Christ and are listening to this show will not agree. (laughs) Uh, Don't worry though, I'm going to make your case for Jesus in just a moment. Now see, I love these myths. I think they speak to something that's so deep and fundamental to our existence. And one of the key differences, though, with the Jesus story is that these stories are about the gods and goddesses. And the gods and goddesses are governed by different laws than we are. Gods and goddesses can live forever. Humans have to face mortality. Myths are very important. And we'll go deeper into them on another show But suffice it to say, myths are sacred stories that are set in a time and place that's outside of history. They describe in fictional form the fundamental truths of life and of nature. Mythology gives life, gives body to the invisible and internal factors that are always a part of life, but they don't appear in literal factual story. Myths reach beyond the personal to express imagery reflective of archetypal issues that shape every human life. And these mythologies from around the world vividly explore these fundamental patterns and themes of human life that you can find anywhere on the globe. And because they are so far-reaching and descriptive of these universal paths and ways in which human life plays itself out, myths can be an indispensable guide in our own self-understanding. So how can we use these myths? We are constantly going through in our own lives the cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. We lose a loved one, and we feel the loss of that. And we go through a dying phase, a mourning phase. A beloved that we were deeply in love with that we lose. And there's a death that occurs. And after some time has passed, there's a period of resurrection. When we suddenly come back to life, we feel reborn. And after this period of mourning and being in the underworld, this newness comes, this vitality, and spring comes, and aliveness returns. And these mythological stories help us to connect on a soulful level to help us navigate through these difficult times, to clue us that we will be resurrected again in our own lives. So mythology and myths are extraordinary valuable. I've gone on a little tangent here, I I want to go back to the history of Easter. Another related perspective of the pagan origins of Easter is that rather than being a representation of the story of Ishtar, Easter was originally a celebration of Esoter, the goddess of spring, otherwise known as Ostara. She was one of the most revered one of the most revered aspects of this ancient practice was the spirit of renewal celebration the sun coming out I mean this was celebrated at the spring equinox and Ostara marked the day when light is equal to the darkness the light continues to grow and the bringer of light after a long dark winter The goddess was depicted with a hare an animal that heralds the arrival of spring as well as the fertility of the season, hares reproduce, and one of the most widely practiced customs that have come down to us is the symbol of the rabbit and the egg. in spring has always symbolized fertility, renewal, and regeneration and in German mythology, Ostara healed a wounded bird and she changed it into a hare. Somehow, the hare was still able to. Was still partially a bird and the hare showed its gratitude for, sa- for being saved by laying eggs as gifts and the egg was a symbol of fertility and renewed life for all these civilizations in the ancient world and when this custom was adopted by the christian tradition the giving of the egg it celebrates new life it became a remembering of jesus dying on the cross rising from the dead Basically, that life could win over death. And when the egg was cracked open, it stands for the empty tomb. So we have all these, much has come down to us from these pagan traditions that have added and uh, augmented, accentuated our Easter celebrations. And it's all associated with spring renewal, resurrection, regeneration. But The point of Easter is the resurrection. And so that's what I want to focus on now. Was it a real event? To Christians all over the world, you bet it is. <laughs> this is. This is the cornerstone of their belief. And many scholars, Christian and non-Christian, have made the case for Jesus based upon the testimonials, testimony in the Gospels. And I'll let you decide based on the evidence presented by them. We have to acknowledge that Christianity exists today as the world's largest religion. Obviously, something happened Significantly, something happened after the tomb. Either Jesus didn't really die on the cross, or the resurrection was a conspiracy, or the disciples were hallucinating, or it really happened. So, is Jesus really dead? One of the places to find out is in the reports of non Christian historians from around the time that Jesus lived. And these historians mention the name of Jesus a man named Jesus. These are Roman historians. One historian was named Josephus, who lived from 37 of the Common Era to 100 of the Common Era, and he wrote, At this time, there appeared Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of amazing deeds. When Pilate condemned him to the cross, the leading men among us, having accused him, those who loved him did not cease to do so. End quote. Another historian Tacitus wrote, quote, "Christus, from whom the name had its origins, suffered the extreme penalty at the hands of our procurator Pontius Pilate." End quote. So, there's no denial there was a death. A man named Jesus was dead. Yet, was it a conspiracy? Was it uh, was the tomb really empty? And the body of Jesus was taken by Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the Sanhedrin council, and he was a rock star at the time. He was a very well-known member, respected member of the council, and he must have been a real person. And Joseph brought him to the tomb and then placed a two-ton stone in front of the tomb itself. Now, the key to this part of the story is the Romans, the Roman soldiers who had a 24-hour watch at the tomb with a trained guard unit. Now, these were about 4 to 16 soldiers. And if that guard unit failed in any way, if they, if they fell asleep, if they were negligent in their duty, if they left their position, if they failed in any way, there are a number of historical sources that go back and describe what actually happened to them. And many of them are stripped of their own clothes. They're burned alive in a fire, started with their own garments. They're crucified upside down. So the Roman guard unit was committed to discipline and fear of failure, they fear failure in any way. So it would have been virtually impossible for them to have slipped by the Roman guards and moved a two-ton stone and removed the body of Jesus. Uh, you, you would think that if someone was able to slip in and take Jesus's body out, they would have found the body somewhere and immediately this would have been exposed as resurrection would have been exposed as a fraud and yet the silence in history is pretty deafening on that and they never found the body now, could they have cremated the body somewhere right after they removed the tomb possibly um, but the fact is they never found they never found the body So the next thing uh, from the New Testament Gospels is that there was all these eyewitness accounts of having seen the resurrected Christ. It's widely believed, obstinately believed by a huge circle of people that Jesus had risen. Walked among them. The tomb was empty on the third day, just like Jesus said would happen. But The fact is, that alone just really couldn't galvanize his followers. I mean, especially if they were the ones who had stolen the body. It's not logical you know something extraordinary that must have happened and these disciples they were they were cowering they were hiding peter denied him three times grieving uncontrollably all of them were fearful of their own death and then suddenly they ceased mourning they ceased hiding and they emerged fearlessly proclaiming they had seen jesus and the gospel describes all these eyewitness accounts of jesus appearing like 10 times on different occasions, showing his hands, his feet. He told his disciples to touch him. And he reportedly ate with them. Later on, uh, he appeared to 500 followers on one occasion. And in 56 of the Common Era, about 26 years after the crucifixion, most scholars generally agree that Jesus was crucified between 30 of the Common Era and 36 of the Common Era. And the Apostle Paul wrote that over 500 people had seen the risen Christ and that most of them were still alive. And this is the actual passage in 1 Corinthians 15.6. Quote, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. End quote. Now this is the earliest account of Jesus' resurrection appearances in the New Testament. I mean these guys they believed and it wasn't just one of the apostles or two of the apostles it was all of them and you know they were willing to be persecuted stoned, whipped, beaten and killed for their beliefs because they had seen the resurrected Christ and they affirmed it for 40 years I and mean, that's never once wavering in their conviction and if these eyewitness reports are not enough this is something that stumps a lot of historians, psychologists, and skeptics, is how these 11 former cowards, these, they were peasants who had nothing to gain from their preaching. They sought neither money nor power or sexual favors. I mean, these people were poor and peaceful. The, the earliest followers of Christ walked the way the way of love they shunned violence of any kind they met evil not with more evil but with good they loved their enemy and did not seek violent confrontation with them and this is a far cry of what happened only a few centuries later when the organized church acquired wealth and power under the emperor Constantine now we I mean, back to the apostles These converted cowards were suddenly willing to suffer humiliation, torture, and death. I mean, would they have suffered that for a lie, Knowing that they had really stolen the body of Jesus just to continue on with his ministry. And we know, we saw on September 11th, that people will die for a false cause that they believe in. However, to be a willing martyr for a lie, that's crazy. I mean men will die for what they believe to be true even though it may be false we do not however die for what we know is a lie Jesus' disciples behaved in a manner that they believed with conviction their leader was a lie no one has been adequately been able to explain why they would be willing to die for a known lie and these have been spineless peasants alright let's just say that for instance, that they all lied and conspired about Jesus, that everything was a fabrication. Could they keep that same story without deviating for 40 years, going on for decades, without someone breaking the silence for money or position? I mean, those who lie don't stick, for personal gain, don't stick together for very long, especially when there's hardship. And when the hardship decreases the benefits, what's the motivation for keep on, for, to keep on going? know, one could say that it was the promise of heaven. And maybe that was their motivation. They didn't have anything else to live for in this life. And nonetheless, I'm not sure that I could go through something with absolute conviction if I knew that what I was preaching was a lie, that it wasn't true. So anyway, these disciples were consistent to the end. And now we have an example in American history, modern American history, where very powerful men in our government, lied to cover up a scandal, Watergate. And these liars had conspired to protect a president. And there was a guy named Chuck, um, Chuck Colson who was implicated in the Watergate scandal in the Nixon administration. And he pointed out the difficulty of several people maintaining a lie for an extended period of time. During Watergate, there were 12 of the most powerful men in our government embroiled in the affair and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks now the apostles had seen Jesus rose from the dead and then they proclaimed that for 40 years they were beaten, tortured, stoned and put in prison, that's just amazing so a profound conviction excuse me, a profound conviction came to this little group of people now, there are some doubters who are to say, well these disciples, they must have been hallucinating. <laughs> and I guess they could have done mushrooms, you know, right after the crucifixion and the Last Supper. When you're on a mushroom high or something similar like that, uh, you do see things, and it, sometimes it can be frightening uh, or very amusing experience. Uh, sometimes people see things that they want that want to see them. And in this case, the disciples were so distraught over the crucifixion of their beloved leader, they desperately wanted to see Jesus alive because they loved him so much. Well, having been high on mushrooms myself, I can tell you I was in my own world. (laughs) Uh, Whatever the guy to me, the guy next to me, whatever he was seeing, I have no idea. And I'm pretty sure he had no idea what I was seeing. So hallucinations are usually... Individual occurrences, and the very nature is one that a person is just seeing one hallucination at a time. So, hallucination is not really a remote possibility. I mean, it's not conceivable that 500 plus persons of average soundness of mind uh, should experience all these sensual impressions—visual, auditory, tactile—and all these experiences should rest entirely on a, on a hallucination. I mean. The other example that contradicts this hallucination theory is the Apostle Paul. Uh, And he was not a big fan of the early Christians. Actually, he persecuted them for blasphemy. He followed the law to the T. And he brutally murdered men, women, and children just for their belief in the resurrected Christ. And his son conversion on the road to Damascus is inexplicable and that was his own testimony that he had seen Jesus resurrected so the last big question we have on this is why did Christianity win why did this tiny little insignificant movement in Jerusalem was able to prevail over the grip of the Jewish establishment and eventually the might of Rome the largest most powerful empire in the world at that time Within 20 years, the apostles had threatened and disrupted the church. And in less than 50 years, they began to unsettle the Roman Empire. That's pretty significant. If there wasn't any resurrection, Christianity should have died out a long time ago. And probably when Jesus was on the cross. But something profound happened to them. Something so profound that the apostles were able to establish a movement. I mean, just think of the psychological absurdity of this. A little band of defeated cowards, cowering in this upper room one day after the crucifixion, afraid for their lives, afraid to die, that they were going to get killed. And then a few days later, they're a company of individuals no persecution could silence. Attempting to attribute that to a fabrication of the resurrection doesn't really make sense. So according to these scholars that I researched, that I just shared with you, all of this points to the resurrection as being an actual event for the individuals connected to Jesus. Their evidence supports the resurrection, and thus they consider it one of the most astounding events in all of human history. Of course, not everyone believes this. And it's only proper to give them a place here at the table on the council to air their perspective. For those of others' faiths and non-believers and atheists and those who were wrongly and justly persecuted by the church, uh, particularly like the Native Americans and others, uh, the resurrection of Jesus is just a story. Uh, It did not occur. No one can transmute their physical body into light. He was no Messiah, no Redeemer. He was not the anointed one to bring us salvation. At best, he was a wise man, a good man, a prophet, with a beautiful, subtle philosophy of life which can lead to a life of love and joy and peace. But conquer death, please. That's not humanly possible. So, at this point, having heard all the, uh, brought all these different perspectives, I wanted to know if anyone other than Jesus had overcome death was he the only one and what I found out I think hopefully will make you wonder, bring hope to your lives Now, see on my journey I've learned a lot of different things and what I'm about to share from this lecture that I listened to just really opened me up to so much wonder Uh, it brought such joy and peace to me and uh, just what I heard these stories of, these other people who were able to overcome death and transmute their bodies into light. Now, there is evidence of others. And I'm, I'm some sure I'm just upset some of the Christians who are listening to the show right now. What? What are you saying? <laughs> are you denying Jesus as the Son of God? No, I'm not. We all come from one God. All of us. We are all sons and daughters of God. And what I'm saying is what is written in Luke 17, 21. Nor will people say, there it is, or here here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. End quote. Not only is Jesus the son of God, but you are all the sons and daughters of God. Regardless of faith, creed, ethnic background, sexual orientation, or anything else that appears to separate us. The light of God is within us all. My explorations have guided me to the East, where spirituality is practiced much differently than what we do in the West. In places like India and Tibet, where Hinduism and Buddhism is rooted, the spiritual technology is focused on the God within and removing all the blocks which prevent us from knowing the self, that within us which connects us to all that is. And this is an old ancient spiritual technology. The goal is self-realization. The external world is merely a reflection of the internal world. To understand the true nature of reality, one must go within. Renounce the temptations and distractions of the material world and cultivate the purification of one's soul through rituals, prayers, chants, bells, singing bowls, forgiveness prayers, and the mindful practice of thinking loving thoughts for oneself and others. And this leads one on the path of enlightenment and perhaps the state of nirvana or perfect peace. Now, there are stories in the East, in particular Tibet, within the Tibetan Buddhist monk tradition, as well as in India, where a highly advanced spiritual person, people, have apparently been able to attain what is called the Rainbow Body, a specialized practice which consists of the meditator being able to dissolve his physical elements of their body and mind into light at the time of their death. And these paranormal phenomena have been reported and seen by eyewitnesses and their disciples as having actually occurred. And these witnesses, these individuals, dissolve their body into light. The rainbow light that is seen at the time of their death is a manifest symbol of the energies of clear white light the Master has successfully dissolved his physical elements into. See, Tibetan spiritual traditions see the world differently. The world and our planet is not a lifeless, inanimate object, but sacred and alive. The five elements of earth, fire, water, air, and space are more than just natural resources. They're considered to be fundamental aspects of a living universe. And they're all aspects of a universal consciousness which we are connected to by that which brought the world into existence. And the rainbow body phenomenon, obviously, is an advanced spiritual practice. And a Catholic priest by the name of Father Francis V. Tiso, set out to understand what this was all about. He did an in-depth study, went to Tibet to investigate the evidence, interviewed the eyewitnesses, and reported back what he found. And he was asked to conduct this research by a Benedictine monk, David Stendel Rast whose intention was to corroborate these claims, accumulate data about the rainbow body, and look at its broader implications. Brother David and Father Francis were able to receive grants to support their research from the American Academy of Religion, the American Philosophical Society, and the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Prior to Father Francis visiting Tibet, various stories were coming out of Tibet of masters who had reached a high degree of compassion and wisdom through their practices. And when they died, rainbows would appear suddenly in the sky. And after several days, it was reported, these masters' bodies disappeared. Sometimes fragments of bones, fingernails or hair were left, and sometimes nothing remained. And these stories reminded them of the resurrected Jesus Christ the embodiment of love, compassion, and selflessness. When Jesus died, his body was never found. In today's world, the resurrection of Jesus is interpreted differently, depending upon which end of the spectrum you lean. For fundamentalists, the resurrection only happened to Jesus and could never happen to another human being. On the other end of the spectrum, the minimalists say the resurrection was about the spirit of Jesus moving on, living on, and it had nothing to do with the body. But there is a growing number of people who are open to the idea that the body is significant to the spiritual realm, and that certain spiritual experiences are universal, including the resurrection. Now, we'll probably take many years of study and research into this complex phenomenon known as the rainbow body, but its implications on humanity could be very profound. As Brother, as brother David Stendel Rast points out, quote, if we can establish as an anthropological fact that what is described in the resurrection of Jesus has not only happened to others, but is happening today, it would put our view of human potential in a completely different light, end quote. Father Francis Tiso is a Catholic priest, a scholar, and writer interested in interreligious dialogue and Tibetan Buddhism. And he wrote a book called Rainbow Body and Resurrection: Spiritual Attainment, the Dissolution of the Material Body, and the Case of Kenpo Cho. He teaches Tibetan Buddhism at the Pontifical Gregorian University in Rome ordained a priest in 1988 of the Roman Catholic Diocese of Isernia Venafro, Italy, where he served as pastor of St. Michael in Fornelli until 2015, and now serves as assistant pastor of St. Joseph in Isernia. And his book focuses on the Tibetan monk named Kempo Achos, who lived in Tibet in a small hermitage in the mountains, and had attained, apparently, the Rainbow Body. What is immediately available for all of you who are interested in this is a 2016 presentation that's given by Father Francis uh, about his book at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, and it's on YouTube. It is a fantastic, amazing lecture, and I highly encourage those who who find this interesting, find some hope in this, uh, to watch the entire presentation for yourselves. It's about two hours long, but I really think it would be worth your time. So Kempo Echos was a Galupa monk from Kham Tibet who lived for about 80 to 82 years and was revered throughout the country. And he was an extraordinary person, so saintly. He was filled with all this saintly love and compassion. He said, there was said that brigands who came to him were transformed in his presence into virtuous people. Animals loved him very much like Saint Francis of Assisi. And he was a man of this saintly virtue. And Tiso observed, quote, everyone mentioned his faithfulness to his vows, his purity of life, and how he often spoke of the importance of cultivating compassion. He had the ability to teach even the roughest and toughest types how to be a little gentler, a little more mindful. To be in the man's presence changed people, end quote. Kempo died in 1998. When Father Francis went to investigate, He was able to locate the village of Kham in a remote area of Tibet where the hermitage of Kempo was situated. And he interviewed a number of people from the village. And one of them was the head of the monastery, the Rinpoche, who spoke about the Kempo with brotherly love and affection. I mean, the Kempo was a dear, dear friend. It's important to note in Buddhist and Hindu teachings, they speak about a light body, a subtle body but not necessarily the attainment of the rainbow body. That's very unique, and it's not a normal part of the practices of most Buddhists or most monks. Now, Kempo's hermitage was located high up in the Himalayas. And the Kempo would sleep in the lotus position. He would not lie down. He would be in meditation, study, and his disciples were around him all the time. And when he was about ready to die, his disciples came to him. Tiso interviewed, Father Tiso interviewed Lama Norta, a nephew of Kempo, Lama Sonam Gyamto, a young disciple, and Lama A. Chos, a Dharma friend of the Kempo. They described a rainbow appear directly above his hut just a few days before he died. They watched the Kempo breathe his last breath, dying on his right side. And there was nothing wrong with him. He wasn't sick or suffering and he was reciting the mantra Om Mani Padme Hum over and over. The eyewitnesses say when his breathing stopped, his face changed. Within moments of his death, they saw his flesh become pinkish like a child. It had this luminous quality to it and the wrinkles disappeared. One said it turned a brilliant white. All of them said it began to shine. Immediately, they sent runners 50 miles to the Dharma brother of the Kempos, Echos, and asked him, what do we what do? We do? <laughs> and he recommended, cover the body with a cloth in yellow robe, the type all Gelug monks wear. Venerate the body, say prayers over it, mantras, rituals. And in eight days, you will see what you need to see. Just make sure not to interrupt the process. Basically, don't touch the body. What they noticed, as the days passed, was that the body started to shrink. It was diminishing. And they maintained that they could see through the robe in the body, through the robe, that his body and his bones were shrinking. And they saw all kinds of rainbows in different shapes, triangle rainbows, rainbows that were straight up and down, a sphere that came up over the house, a sphere of light that could be seen from a long distance and was witnessed by others in the village they could see this sphere of light not only for, for them or not only by, near the hermitage but people also reported this from a great distance wordless beautiful mysterious music was heard coming from the sky angelic music and a gentle rain that had the smell of flowers all of them reported this Now, Father Francis had a set of questions for them to answer, and he inserted these questions and answers in his book. And all of those who were interviewed reported the same thing. The testimony was very consistent. The rainbows, the sphere of light, the mysterious music from the sky, the smell of flowers. And then, after seven days, the monks removed the yellow cloth and no body remained. The Lama Norta and a few other individuals claimed that after the death, the Kempo visited them in visions and dreams. So here is a modern case where a pious saintly Buddhist monk had been able to transform his physical material body and dissolve it into light. And this research is clearly controversial because it confronts us with a reevaluation of the age-old questions of death, the immortality of the soul, and reincarnation. And in addition, this research suggests that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not an isolated case, but one of many, and suggests that it, this may be possible for human beings. So why did Father Francis take on this research when Brother David, the Benedictine monk, asked him, Well, Father Tiso (laughs) had not only studied 10 different languages, including Tibetan, but he is also familiar with the Tibetan culture. And the opportunity to explore the phenomenon of the rainbow body and a possible connection to the resurrection of Jesus excited his interest. And so he willingly agreed to the project. Interestingly, the Vatican back in 1966 wanted to learn from the Zen Buddhist masters because there was skepticism among the many scholars about the resurrection. That it was just a subjective experience of the disciples. It was not an actual event. What the Vatican and others wanted to know was if the human being had the capacity to achieve this result. If so, there had to be something in our human experience that can confirm or deny such an event. Resurrection corresponds to light involved. There's a dissolution into light. And matter is converted into energy. Thus, the rainbow body is possibly another way that the resurrection can occur. A transmutation of the body into light. Now, these things are, by their nature, very difficult to verify or falsify. And a lot of it depends upon the cultural sensibilities of the people. It's important to understand The values, culture, and spiritual practices within which the phenomenon is embedded. And this understanding can lead to an expansion of our awareness, our consciousness, and our potential as human beings. During this lecture, Father Francis brought up a really interesting connection between the Christian communities and the Buddhist communities that go all the way back 1,200 years ago to around 780 of the Common Era. In that Central Asian region, which includes Tibet and China, there exists in the historical documents from that region the interchange and exchange of concepts and ideas between many of the monastic communities living there. Conversations were happening between these monastic sects. Buddhist sex and Christian sects. Uh, the, they were in China, and this would have a profound impact on them both and their understandings of spirituality. The Buddhists ended up taking the risks that was very articulated in the Christian thought, but not fully developed yet in the Buddhist thought. And that was two things, and this all comes from the lecture. One, the physical body Undergoing paranormal transformation, which we would call the resurrection. And two, the actual eschatological goal or purpose for the entire cosmic process. What was considered by the Buddhist was that maybe rather than a karma-driven universe, let me say that again, a karma-driven universe, where everything was driven by the laws of cause and effect, and those consequences weighed down... The consciousness of humanity and always influenced by the good and bad choices that we made in our lifetime which got passed down the generations, perhaps it was a gnosis-driven universe where humanity and the universe are seeking a, are seeking a cognitive realization, a gnosis, and the universe is seeking liberation from itself. And through our realization, The universe is thus liberated. Deep stuff. (laughs) Deep stuff, I know. The Tibetans though, because of their values and spiritual practices, over time they developed, fine-tuned, and refined the technology to produce meditative techniques which produce extraordinary results on a very subtle energetic level. And inspired by what they learned, study, and heard from all these various groups, the spiritual groups, the Manichaeans, the Muslims, the Hindus, and the Christians inhabiting this Central Asian region, they integrated these teachings and they moved the concept forward. And this particular sect of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, as a consequence, have reported, recorded, and documented numerous cases of this paranormal event of attainment of the rainbow body. Ironically, most, most Buddhists wouldn't even understand these practices. It's so unusual. And Lama Chos says it takes about 60 years of intensive practice to achieve this attainment. So it's really a lifelong retreat. Now we have something similar in the Christian tradition as well. Highly advanced saints in the Catholic and Orthodox tradition tend to move in the direction of incorruption, where the body doesn't decay. And I had the privilege uh, of witnessing this with my own eyes when I was in Lebanon last year and visited the tomb of a venerated saint, St. Stephen. And he died in the early 1900s. And his body is the same as it was when, it, when he passed away. And he has not decomposed. And it is encased in an open sarcophagus behind a window uh, for everyone to see. And I even took a picture of this to show others who would doubt uh, the credulity of what I was saying. I mean, it gave me chills just to see this with my own eyes. It is a verified miracle. Just like the Tibetan monks believe being able to dissolve their bodies into light, another miracle in another part of the globe. So to summarize what we've been discussing as we're drawing close to the end of this show, This rainbow body practice where the practitioner is able to dissolve the coarse aspects of their body and mind into light at the time of their death. It's been witnessed in this part of the world by many 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 people, hundreds and hundreds of people and this phenomenon of the rainbow light is witnessed at the time of death as I described and as a symbol of the energies of clear white light of the meditator who has successfully dissolved their physical elements back into light obviously it's a very advanced practice <laughs> but it suggests that there is a human potential that may be possible for all human beings and very often it's just those who are highly spiritual highly, uh, usually great saintly beings, highly advanced saints who achieve this but these are miracles that happen you have often heard that people see and speak about seeing a halo or seeing light around a very pure or saintly person. You know, someone who embodies holiness, someone who radiates and emanates from them uh, some feeling that can be felt by those closest to them. And we often see the halo, the light of the saints, uh, in great paintings from our past. That, my friends, whether you're consciously aware or not, whether the artist were aware or not, is a depiction of the light within us, the light body. So, what does all this mean for us? The resurrection of Christ, the rainbow body of these sages and monks, and the resurrection of everybody is key, one with the other. What I'm trying to say is, what Christ was, we will be. And what is going to happen in our bodies later? Why shouldn't it happen in our hearts now? The rainbow body phenomenon, which I have just described to you today, is going to challenge the notion that we have to wait until the end of time before we rise from the dead. And there are others in the Bible who also defeated death. Enoch, Elijah, Mother Mary, and Moses also ascended. So, what can we do today to speed up the spiritual evolution of our own souls on this most holy of weekends? Obviously, we must maintain some sobriety on this. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> uh, most of us are not monks or nuns or highly advanced spiritual people uh, or living this saintly life. We've got bills to pay and families to raise. And, and, uh, but there are certain things that we can do. We can bring in more compassion and love to ourselves, our families, friends, and our communities. We can have more tolerance, more forgiveness, more compassion, more kindliness, more acceptance, more inter-religion dialogue so that we can learn from one another. We can deepen our faith and devotion to a spiritual life, whatever that path may be for you. The qualities of conscience and consciousness are what drive, are the driving forces of evolution. So my advice is live a good life, do good to others, and good will come back to you. There's a gift that I want to give you before we end today's show. We're a little over. Thank you for staying with me. I really appreciate all of you being here with me. Uh, that came from the video presentation about the rainbow body with Father Francis. It's so wonderful. And towards the end, there was an attendee. It was a Catholic woman who was like, wow, this is a great idea. (laughs) But how can this idea of the rainbow body be understood by a lay Catholic or Christian person? And Father Francis responded by saying, well, how that during the course of his travels and research in Tibet, he had the opportunity to meet with the Dalai Lama. And he posed the same kind of a question to the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama gave him a very simple practice. He said, what a Catholic or a non-Catholic or, or a Christian needs to do is just to sit quietly for a few moments and visualize before you the presence of the Lord. In this case, Jesus Christ. And for those of you who don't follow that, place whoever that figure is before you. Mother Mary, Buddha, Kuan Yin, whoever it may be, and use that in this case. And visualize before you the presence of the Lord. Visualize Christ before you in his beauty and light and allow that to come into your heart through faith and devotion. And when you allow it to come into your heart, we want to imagine that this comes out from us to everyone around us. So the idea is Breathe in. Take a long breath in. And visualize that sphere of light. See the Christ before you. And then take in another deep breath. And allow that to come into your heart. Take another deep breath. And send that light so you're sharing it. And finally, a long breath in. And welcome the gift. And just rest in the present, and you can do that for two minutes every day. It's an example of radical simplicity, but the joy we can feel can be ten times what we normally feel. So that's our show for today. Uh, we're a little bit over time, but thank you, you know, for being with me. I don't know there may be some out there who may doubt the credibility of this or outside the believability. And you may be right, you know, uh, we all are free to believe what we, what we want. You know, part of the mission of the council is to share and spread ideas and concepts, understandings and wisdom from people all over the world. And insights, I believe, into under other ways of living, their practices and cultures can potentially expand and awaken new comprehensions. Of the mystery of life. Folks, in all these religions, love is the key. Love, love, love is a key. Forgiveness is a key. Compassion is a key. Tolerance is a key. Love's the key. I wish you a very happy Easter weekend with all of your family and your friends and loved ones. I want to thank KUHS Denver. Uh, for hosting this show. They are some amazing people here. We are broadcasting some of the best shows and the best music here in Colorado, in the nation, and all around the world, internationally. Uh, the audience for this show is growing beyond anything I could ever, ever have imagined. I really am honored and humbled and grateful to all of you who have trusted me and trusted me with this. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. I will continue to honor that and try to bring you the best shows. Uh, I possibly can and, and the best people thank you thank you thank you without the show couldn't exist so council will be back on the air in two weeks may you all be well may you all be free of pain and suffering may you all be whole I am your host Charlie Pacello the council is adjourned thank you folks and God bless Thank you again, folks, for tuning in on the international camera, broadcasting internationally. Wishing you all a very happy Easter, a happy holiday weekend. May be filled with many joys and blessings. And we will be back on the air in two weeks for another great show here on the council on KUHSdenver.com. Broadcasting to you the best music, the best shows, anywhere you can find. God bless, everyone. Interesting.